Anyway, several years ago, I was sitting in the local empanada cafe, and and I know that I mentioned it that same evening here as I was listening to the music that they sometimes, it's like music that's on their television there. And what was playing was Bob Marley's redemption song, uh, Emancipate Yourself from Mental Slavery, None But Ourselves Can Free Our Minds. And it, was, it started rolling through my head. So because of that association, when I go into the empanada shop, which I did again this evening, it, often that wor- the words of that song will start rolling through my mind. And at the time, I was very struck by, by the lyrics again and what, what a dharma uh, feel they have. To emancipate yourself from mental slavery. That's really what it's about. It's about liberation. It's about freedom. None but ourselves can free our mind. And I looked it up and then I discovered that, that the, the lyrics were inspired by Marcus Garvey, who many of you probably know is the, really the father of the, uh, the black nationalist uh, uh, movement, the, really the forerunner to Black Lives Matter and all the, the, uh, the real awakening of the, um, of the black community and black pride, etc. But I found the actual quote from Marcus Garvey at the time, and I thought I'd share it with you again and then tell you what, what the next little chain of associations were that came with that. And this was originally published in Black Man Magazine sometime, and it, it was a talk that he gave in Nova Scotia. He said, we are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body, None but ourselves can free the mind. Mind is your only sovereign or ruler. The man who is not able to develop and use his mind is bound to be the slave of the other man who uses his mind. So this sovereignty over our our mind or our heart, heart heart-mind to me are the same. Uh, It's only a, a more current western split between heart and mind that we when we say heart we point to our physical heart and when we say mind we point to our mind but our mind is not in the brain and our heart is is not just located here it's, it's heart mind is the word chitta it's consciousness is the the mysterious capacity to know and then all of those beautiful qualities that flow from our consciousness, the unconfined capacity to both uh, feel, respond, to be skillful, to everything flows from heart-mind, from chitta. And this, this capacity to, to both become bound in our hearts and minds and to be liberated depends in many cases on our, uh, on our understanding. And what has occurred to me over the last many years is, is a little 
line, it's like a mantra that I use, that it is, um, it is wise to be loving, and loving, the most loving thing you can do is be wise. And I was thinking that, that the, the emancipation of the heart begins with, uh, or a central part of the emancipation of the heart it comes with the wisdom, the wisdom to understand. And I'll use the line that my friend Wes Nisker uses, the wisdom that you, that each of us, I'll just say you as he says it, you are not your fault. That each of us is the heir, is the inheritor of of beginningless causes and conditions. Beginningless causes and conditions that are in, uh, in a fundamental way not our fault, not personal. Everything that brought you into being happened uh, outside of your control. You were born outside of your control. Everything that happened to your parents, your grandparents, your culture, everything about you, you could say there's almost nothing that we can find within ourselves that exists completely independently from everything that brought us into being. And I find that very relieving. I don't know about you. And as soon as I expand my view, as soon as I widen my lens, I stop seeing myself as just this solid entity existing independently from life, the wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. Instead, I start recognizing that I am, in fact, neck deep in the current of causes and conditions, of cause and effect that has no beginning. I can start in the more recent present where I was born into a, I, I often like to just acknowledge, I'm a 65-year-old white guy who was born into a Jewish family. And so being born into a Jewish family, I've in this culture, I have not always been the right kind of white guy, but I have been, through no fault of my own, born into these conditions. And because of being born into the conditions I've been in, I was, I've been born into a certain kind of implicit privilege. Just because this is a, a culture that has been dominated by, by whiteness. Not my fault. And yet, uh, I, by being aware of the conditions that brought me into being, and then to see that everyone is the heir of their conditions, I see that if you were born into a, a, another uh, race, or uh, you were born into a particular gender, you were born into a, you were born into a certain kind of 
gender identity or sexual identity or class or education or most of it, right down to the... There's really nothing in any of us in how we were born that is exists apart from everything that came before, from beginningless time. So no one can help themselves. It's no one's fault. Yet from our more narrow point of view, our narrow view of ourselves existing independently, and because of our narrow view that, that develops through, through our the tendency of our mind to divide, to separate, to create a sense of that, that illusion of isolation, we have formed into, into groups, into views, into, and we've all caught, we're all caught up in what the Buddha called the four floods, the flood of sexuality. So we are sensuality, sen, not sexuality, sensuality. Our, our mind is so preoccupied with the, with seeking pleasurable experiences and arranging our lives around the satisfaction of desires that our, our view gets really narrow. And it becomes all about satisfying me and so much identity is built around, around becoming. That's the second flood, the flood of becoming. I'm always on my way to the future. That makes my mind very narrow and I forget that I'm sitting in a sea of connections. I'm part of a, a circle of, of being that's wider than wide and beginningless. The flood of sensuality, the flood of becoming, the flood of identity around our views. That gets hardened through, through uh, the way that we divide and the way we separate. It gets hardened into opinions and views and you can see the the state of our poli- our body politic now around such polarization of views these floods make us forget that we are are not separate from each other not separate from everything that ever brought us to be it's like every single person here no matter who you are i couldn't be here if you weren't isn't that wild? I couldn't exist. I couldn't have this experience right now if you didn't have, unless somebody frowned or smiled at you some at the beginning of your life or 10 lifetimes ago. It's all part of a sea of interbeing. But from our narr- when we're caught in the floods of sensuality and becoming and views, and confusion about our ignorance, we, um, we just start thinking we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. And what that does is it creates that duality of self and other. And then once I exist as separate, then you are the other. And it all, and there's, there's contentiousness. And yet that that othering happens from the moment we're, we're born. That's part of our conditioning too, of this creating a sense of individuality. Those who don't have a sense of individuality spend their whole lives trying to get it. 
But that individuality is easily forgotten as something that doesn't exist alone. We don't want to forget that. We want to keep our view really wide. Because the way it, it occurs over time is if you forget that, when you start to experience stress, and if you're born, as you, as you know the basic teachings, if you're born, definition of birth, leading cause of stress, leading cause of, of, of uh, frustration, leading cause of, of what's called dukkha, things that are hard to bear. Stress from being born, stress from getting ill, stress from aging, stress from dying, stress from work, stress from relationships, stress from sound, you know, the sound, everything. Just having senses. The Buddha called it Sankara Dukkha. We are, there's a constant impingement. We're constantly having to see, hear, smell, taste, and it's intense to be born. But when our view has gotten narrowed, we start thinking, it's just me. It's my fault that I'm stressed. And then what the, the movement of, because we're so individualistic, then everybody adopts things that are very individualistic to heal it. And one of those things, positive things, is meditation. I'm going to do that for myself. None but ourselves can free our minds. Of course, if you just... If you just saw it in a vacuum, your individuality in a vacuum, all the meditation in the world would just uh, would just make you um, would make you just how can I say this? Would make you divinely selfish. <laughs> True meditation will lead you to the melting of you, the melting of this this isolated, encased. Um, fixed sense of individuality, it will melt your heart into the ocean of interbeing, of interdependence. But we are all trained in this culture, particularly in hyper-individuality, in hyper-disembodiment, uh, hyper-rational thinking hyper self-judgment and self-blame. I, I don't know if I talked about it last week, but I, I talk about it a lot. Just the, some of the, you know, hearing about how the Dalai Lama was just so blown away by the amount of self-hatred and self-judgment. And one of my favorite teachers, uh, Sri Nisargadatta, says self-judgment, self-hatred are grievous errors. They just completely miss the fact that we are we are um, affected by a sea of circumstances and that to regard ourselves with uh, hatred just takes blame where blame doesn't belong. It's, it's, it's because of the flood of confusion or ignorance that you blame yourself for the, the conditions of your own life. So I often tell a story, just to illustrate this, just that came out of my own practice period, and I see so many familiar faces, so forgive me for repeating this story, but I had a, a, a very heart-changing, mind-changing moment on a, a three-month meditation 
period that, um, that changed everything for me in terms of this um, tendency toward self-judgment. It, beca- it started the unraveling of what had been, uh, had been a chronic sense of holding myself hostage, holding myself blame for my very existence. I would cut myself no slack, intense inner critic. And I was sitting this very long practice period, and I was sitting in my room all alone. And the room was about seven or eight feet wide by about 11 feet long. And I had my little foam mattress in the room, and I had, and there wasn't much, there was no closet because the room was just so small, but there was a little dowel rack hanging from the side, and I put all my clothes there. And from the moment I got in that room, I kept saying to myself, you have so many clothes with you. You've just, you've got so much stuff. And I had lots of pillows, and I put nice paintings or pictures of tropical scenes on the wall to kind of warm my heart during the the cold winter months at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And for those for two months out of that first two and a half months, I, every, I would be in that room and that room became very familiar. And, and I was certainly doing, I was hours, 18, 20 hours of practice every day. I got my sleeping down to four hours and 15 minutes. And if I slept one minute more, I would be dull. If I slept one minute less, I'd be dull. And I, I got into this whole little strange science of seeing how much sleep I actually needed because I had taken to heart the the Buddha's teaching that the biggest cause of dullness is too much food and too much sleep. Believe it or not, that sounds kind of different than our modern science. But anyway, I'm sitting in this room and I, whenever I was a little uncomfortable, I'd look around and, and I'd see all my stuff. And half of the time, I would judge myself a little bit for having so much stuff. The other half of the time, I would plan having more stuff. I would think about wearing certain things and getting them in different colors, and then I would judge that too. You know, so it would, that was part of my, my form of mental illness that would take place. And, but all of this it was part of the, the field of mindfulness, so I was noticing it. And an interesting thing happened as I went along, and this, I'll do this in, the, in about three minutes. I sat there and as my mind got quieter and quieter and quieter, and, my, and the mindfulness got more and more uh, continuous, the world that I would ordinarily see of, of objects began to, to break down. Everything began to deconstruct. And it was literally like I was seeing through the folds of the world, seeing how everything was arising and fading and and that there was really no there there. You know, it was the, that's what happens when you're, the power of mind is like putting mind and body under a microscope and the world becomes completely deconstructed and it, it liberates the, the mind from the confusion of seeing everything as dense and hard and separate as we ordinarily do. But parallel to this process of deconstructing reality was the, the feeling of being, uh, getting more and more, uh, I call it psychologically regressed. I was getting younger and younger and younger. And I, 
And I would look around at the stuff in the room and, and, the, and the, the experiences of sights and sounds and smells and tastes, and I would be absolutely overwhelmed by it. Like I was a little baby just having the, my senses impinged upon and being just flooded. And there was a certain point where I felt so regressed and so young and everything impinging so intensely on my senses that I, I couldn't handle it. And I felt so young and so raw and I realized, oh, oh, whatever. I, I realized I need to be held. I felt like a, a little infant. And I realized that there was no one there to hold me. Clearly, I'm sitting alone in a room. No one there to hold me. So what did I do? I rolled off of my cushion that was sitting on my foam pad, grabbed all the extra pillows that I had, wrapped them around my, my body, and I held myself. And with that moment of holding myself, I just started weeping, wailing, weeping. So young, so raw, needing to be held so much. And then in a in a flash of insight, I looked around at all the stuff in my room and a, a thought went through my mind, oh, that's how I've been trying to hold myself, by having a lot of stuff. And in that moment of recognition, it was as though my heart just went, it was like this piercing of my heart and all of a sudden this wave of self-compassion of kindness, of love, uh, flowed toward this, this mind and body. And uh, I realized that I had been judging something that was this, this uh, in some ways, this, the best I knew how, this intelligent way of, of trying to come to my own rescue. And that my flight from pain or my seeking of pleasure and search for pleasure was a kind of love. It was an attempt to love myself. And I had been busy judging it. And then I started to reflect on this particular methodology of trying to soothe myself. And I go, whoa, this is, this is a consumer culture. This is, what, this is how people try to hold themselves. Of course, it's completely misguided and ends up causing us more and more stress, but it's, it's a sign of love. And so with, with more self-compassion toward myself, that never really ended after that. Even though the old threads of self-judgment would pop up, there was this almost default feeling of coming to my own rescue at times where I didn't show up in some way or somebody said something, some, something mean or um, you know, whatever it was that triggered some kind of pain, instead of judging myself for feeling vulnerable, this automatic reaction of kindness would come. But the, a more interesting response, for me anyway, was that then I started to see how everybody was doing the best they could with the, the causes and conditions that led them to be who they are. And everybody was, even all the misguided ways of even things that cause harm are attempts to, to bring relief 
And then it became, uh, it became the only wise response I could see to myself was to be loving. The only wise response to anyone else and their actions is to, be, is to try to maintain that open-heartedness, even to those in this world, and it's a taller task, but even those who I consider perpetrators, that there's something in them that's attempting to find relief, and that, if I can connect with that, I can open my heart a little bit. Doesn't mean I like what they're doing, and doesn't mean that I don't devote my life to stopping what they're doing, but at least I don't have to hold them with the same ill will, the same sense of othering, the same sense of, of, um, of hatred uh, that, I, that I did before. So I have to remind myself, of course, this is especially given our, never mind, the name that shall not be spoken. Um, but it's wise to be loving. And the most loving thing you can do is, is wake up to your, to your uh, systemic non-separateness. Uh, that wisdom will open your heart. And if you open your heart, you will, um, you'll be wise. That's, so thanks for listening and thanks for your generosity. And may we all be kind to ourselves this week, kind to others. And everybody should sign up for Mary's Brahma Vihara class because that's what that's all about.